welcome to the You Got It Girl podcast. Today we have Venerie Kong here with us. She is the co-founder of The World Is Watching. Yes, hi Nancy, thank you so much for having me. So I am one of the co-founders of The World Is Watching. Um, it kind of got birth because a colleague of mine started seeing a lot of the police brutality that was not only in the United States, but other countries. And I, um, in, in my current work, I'm actually in global governance um, through the Department of State and the White House initiatives. So we started getting contact a lot by our friends overseas that were facing a lot of the same thing. So we wanted to create an international coalition by empowering youth voices um, to more so get involved with um, how to hold people, um, especially governments and law enforcement, accountable for a lot of the police brutality that's happening against uh, people of color. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. We're organizations to kind of um, get more voices at the table on um, promoting justice and human rights. That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in DC? I know you're um, currently a Harvard, you're studying at Harvard University, you're working in DC. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm actually um, studying cybersecurity and public policy. Uh, my particular goal is I want to be the U.S. ambassador, um, to, particularly in the Southeast Asian region, the Pacific Islands. Um, that was my that's my regional focus. And um, currently, right now, I'm working with um, a lot of South Asian uh, groups in uh, a lot of the international affairs region to figure out how to create infrastructure building and protect the technology. So um, countries like Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos can um, get catch up on the global scale of things of, you know, keeping up with digital uh, diplomacy and things like that. Their lack of technology, depending on where you go, especially in like the really rural areas, because um, I think like with us being in the United States, we're just so used to technology. They're like little kids, like toddlers with like iPads and stuff. So like when you go to a third world country, you see like how far behind they are. It's kind of crazy. So I think it's great what you're doing with your organization. Yes, and I'm glad that you mentioned that too, because, um, you know, my mom's actually from Cambodia, when I actually went to go visit my family, you know, I'm sure it's kind of replicated in Vietnam too. A lot of girls, unfortunately, don't get a chance to go to school because they have to stay at home and take care of kids. So I've actually um, even worked with Unite 2030, and they uh, created these social entrepreneurship projects to bring cell phones, which has lesson plans and schooling to girls back in Vietnam and Cambodia to get them, you know, when they have time outside of doing housework and keeping up with the culture norms to actually receive an education, which is why I was passionate about bringing the cybersecurity space into the developing nations. Awesome. So how did you kind of get into this? Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of, you know, what kind of inspired you to go down this route, this path? Yeah, I can definitely talk about that. So my mom and my entire family are actually refugees from um, Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge War. So they came to the un United States in uh, 1981. And my father's um, actually African American. So and I'm actually from the Midwest in Indiana. So growing up being having an African American father and like a refugee mother, I actually got to I, was actually, I don't want to call it trapped in two worlds, but I got the best and the worst of living in both worlds. You know, seeing how there wasn't a lot of resources for Southeast Asians that are resettling within the U.S. And, you know, um, and I know personally, my grandfather actually worked for the American Embassy under um, Long Nol, who was appointed by the United States government at the time during the Cold War. So growing up when my, um, unfortunately, after my parents divorced, my grandpa was taking care of me, but he also taught me about 
foreign relations, international affairs, um, things like that at a really young age and talked about the importance of going to school and trying to go back. And he taught me about Southeast Asian economics. Um, so from there, that's kind of where it was birthed. And that's when he would talk to me about the United Nations. And then when genocides happened, the International Courts of Justice and the war tribunals, um, and so then like growing up, I knew when I went to undergrad at Indiana University, I knew that I wanted to work at, um, within this realm. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of people of color that go into foreign policy, especially women, because where um, the Department of State actually came out with the government accountability report saying that women and minorities, um, the rates are as low as they were before during the times of segregation. So right now, um, just getting bringing that women's empowerment into the space and with the recruitment um, recruitment initiatives that's what kind of led me into going into the space so um yeah i went to indiana university unfortunately you know having being one of the first from your state to kind of get break into this global um field there um you know i didn't re receive a whole lot of support and unfortunately there were there was a time where i came out of homelessness but i became the first student at indiana university to intern at the united nations headquarters in new york um once i graduated um i networked with the right people got a recommendation letter for harvard's kennedy program um, and the extension program within cybersecurity, and i ended up getting a fellowship out in washington dc so i currently work for a government contractor for the D the department of defense and i'm one of the only few women in my office especially um, asian american and uh, african-american as well so that's kind of what led me out here you had mentioned that you're working you did some work with the united nations can you tell us a little bit about that and your experience what was it like yeah, so um, um, actually last year, the White House actually appointed me to represent the U.S. Um, in the G20 Youth Summit in Tokyo, Japan. So we got to meet with Prime Minister Abe and work really close with the Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, I advocated for intellectual property protection, which basically means, you know, if you have a business and you have a blueprint that other countries can't come in and copy your work, but I'm not gonna name any countries in particular that's known for doing this um, and replicating it and stealing money and revenue. So that's what I advocated for, for trade purposes. And then from there, um, I actually got to go speak at the United Nations um, alongside with Japan, the uh, World Bank and the World Trade Organization and bringing that youth voice and that women's empowerment voice that the UN actually advocates for um, at the government decision-making level to make sure that it's not just male-dominated. So that's one of the projects that I worked on. Yeah, so then recently, actually this year, the United States was uh, in charge of hosting the G7 Summit. Um, and the G7 Summit more so focuses on the financial markets. Um, um, this year, it was supposed to be in person due to COVID-19. Um, and uh, it was actually held virtually. So this year, um, the White House actually charged the Young Professionals in Foreign Policy to host it. So I was in charge of global connectivity and trade. So my role as a Sherpa, so a Sherpa basically, we have Sherpas at the, at the White House too. They're basically handle the negotiations with other countries. Um, anything when it comes to economics, um, immigration, it depends on whatever the agenda is that year. So the G7 countries are um, United Kingdom, Canada, the US, um, Japan, Italy, Germany, and the, and the European Union. Um, it used to be G8, but President Obama kicked Russia out after some human rights issues. Um, 
So yeah, this year what I ended up having to do was everyone, all the countries sent all their trade proposals to me. And because the G7 countries are all completely different, I had to actually negotiate it and handle it out and turn it up and, uh, and basically the end result had to be two pages within the communique. Um, due to George Floyd dying, um, however, with the law enforcement, the G, uh, G7 countries actually all came together and came out with the Black Lives Matter um, resolution that was also submitted to the White House as long as our counterparts in the other countries. So that's also what led to the world is watching being born because you had all these representatives that were chosen by their government saying, hey, these are issues that we're also facing in our countries. We need to do something about it. And it was also great, obviously, having women at the table as well. Um, so um, yeah, after the communique was published, after we presented it to the White House and the Sherpas and the European Union, um, then that's when the that's when the communique actually came into influence policy. So something that I particularly came to um, do um, was I actually reached out to the World Bank and to the WTO and figuring out what can we do as women from the Southeast, that are descendants from the Southeast Asian nation to um, improve trade policies in the, in the crisis that we're going through right now, especially during COVID. Because um, as you know, having the Cambodian Vietnam um, ancestry like you and I both have, we actually want to give back to being back home. So I know for me, it was really important to make sure we include that infrastructure building and making the women's voice heard because women don't get a lot of opportunities back home. And that's something that I wanted to do personally was give back while staying true to myself. And something that I personally try to combat to being in the role in foreign policy, I mean, like you, Nancy, I love fashion. I love makeup. I don't feel like anyone should have, I mean, I do agree that you have to be professional, but I love color. So something that I personally take, um, wanted to do was to create more partnerships between the public sector, like government, not-for-profit, and the private sector, such as fashion, um, finance. What can we do to bridge those gaps and to make, make it more comprehensible for everyone to understand that each of us have a role to play to making the world a better place? We're gonna go ahead and start girl talk now. So what is your fashion go-to? So I do have friends that are in the fashion industry. So if I'm going to one of their events to support them, because I love having networks outside of what I do, I typically tend to go to satin pants and I love a burnt Ooh. orange color and they're silk. And I tend to do like a black top and like a bold lip. And then um, a very, very neutral, very neutral uh, cat eye with lashes and everything um and then i tend to if i'm wearing a necklace i'll just go with a simple pearl and uh, let's see if i'm going to an event like if i'm going to an event like something on capitol hill what i typically tend to wear is i typically tend to wear um a high waist pant um very a very like sleek cut crease on the pants and trousers um the ones that i wear are pink because i like color um, hmm. And then I tend to do like a, a white blazer with a silk chiffon, like um, off white top. And normally, because um, I have really thick curly hair, so normally I'm just putting it up in a bun because it gets hot being on the subway. <laughs> so normally I'm just putting it up in the top. And then I have like a, a work bag, but it's um, something I put my laptop in. But normally that's like nude or like a nautical color. And then normally I'm wearing like nude stilettos. Okay, um, beauty must-haves. I know you mentioned you love a statement. <laughs> lip color yes i do so a must have a very good toner and a good serum because you have to have a good base before you actually start putting on good makeup and a good foundation and you have to make sure 
your primer and your foundation are equally matched. You can't have like one that's based off of silicone and what I actually read the ingredients. So you know yes. you don't to, yeah, yeah. So you don't want to make sure that your like your foundation is like melting off your face. You know, um and then for me I always want a good um a good finishing spray and I'm a big believer in banana powder too, like baking your face, covering up the uh the the bag with your eyes especially if you're like work work women like ourselves you know yeah um, I'm a big believer in being very polished and then um for me if I'm wearing my hair naturally curly braces straight I always believe in having a good conditioner um hair conditioner to kind of making sure that your curls are perfect so something that I've been using recently is Maui and I love tropical scents because I just feel like it adds an extra oomph to your day so that's something that I personally believe in awesome. but um I'm also learning how to use like natural foods into your skincare re routine. So um, my friend, she's actually, she's um, half Jamaican, half Chinese too, but she was telling me about using rice water to um, in your hair because it helps grow your hair back and it like prevents, um, prevents shedding. So that's one way just like, I like, you know, investing more time into your physical appearance but then for me I'm a really big believer in books I'm reading this book by Chris Voss and it talks about uh, never split the difference it's talk uh, it's called never split the difference negotiate as if your life depends on it so incorporating like advocating for what you want and what you deserve especially within the workplace with salaries and benefits um okay um what are your foodie cravings my foodie cravings <laughs> any um, restaurants in particular or like certain type of food yes so because i'm far away from my mom i think i think i'm always craving asian food um so in vietnam you guys call it ban seo but i in uh -huh. you call it ban chow and so uh -huh. i love like a crepe dish I, i'm always like craving it and i feel like whenever i make it i don't make it as good as like the restaurants for my mom so nothing uh -huh. tastes as good as being at home um I don't want to say pho because it's just like everyone eats it now. <laughs> I love pho. I have it like oh, right. once a week. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I think I'm pronouncing it right. So we got bum bao hui. I'm always yeah. That's something that I'm always like craving. So I know I know it's a Vietnamese dish. I just never know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. But I love, oh. I love going to like the mom and pop shops. Um, or like going to like the Korean dessert places too. And then sometimes like I do miss having like food with my dad's side family. So like my boyfriend, I will always try to go to like a soul food restaurant, um, you know, to support local businesses as well, so. Yes, for sure. Yes, I love like mom and pop shops. Like it's usually like the hole in a wall type spot. Well, like have the best food too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You got it, girl.